Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the last naval battle of the American Revolution took place off of Cape Canaveral. I think in my article I referred to it as a two-ship treasure fleet that was on a secret mission to secure funding to pay the American soldiers that had been pretty much languishing for almost two years without pay in upstate New York and other places throughout the colonies. We'll discuss naturalist John Muir's trip to Florida in 1867. He was nearly blinded in March of 1867, and while he was recovering in, in a dark room, he realized that his time was better spent exploring the natural world. And talk about the Veterans Legacy Program. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Wooden ships on the water Very free and easy Easy, you know the way it's supposed to be Silver on the shoreline Let us be Talking about The British controlled Florida from 1763 to 1783, encompassing the entire American Revolution. Florida remained loyal to England and King George III throughout the conflict. As colonial historian Roger Smith explains, the British separated Florida into two regions with Pensacola, the capital of West Florida, and St. Augustine, the capital of East Florida. In West Florida, Probably 98%, as, as, as historians have, have, have guessed as much as, and estimated as much as 98% of the uh, trade that went throughout uh, West Florida actually went through uh, New Orleans, which was illegal. Uh, because of the Navigation Acts, everything was supposed to go to, to England and then be put on new ships and shipped to whatever the destination was. So it would have to have gone from, say, Mobile to England and then back to New Orleans. So they just said, forget this, you know, we're gonna send it down the river. So they were loyal to whatever system worked best. And what worked best was that the British basically left them alone and they did whatever they wanted to. In East Florida, it was a different situation. Um, in East Florida, they hadn't made basically a dime from 1763 to 1774. From 1774 uh, on, the, the colony became prosperous because of the peace with the Seminoles. And uh, once the colony became prosperous, um, on, uh, on August 11th, 1776, news of the, uh, the Declaration of Independence reached St. Augustine. And a large crowd gathered in the plaza with effigies of Samuel Adams and uh, John Hancock, and they hung them in trees and set them on fire. Because the attitude was like, okay, we haven't made any money for 11 years and you want us to do what? You know, so it was, uh, it was very much, it, it wasn't like the rest of the, of the colonies where it was, uh, you know, estimated at a, a third loyal, a third patriot, and a third just leave me alone. In East Florida, it was every man adamantly loyal to king and country. 
The last naval battle of the American Revolution took place off of Cape Canaveral on March 10, 1783. Two American ships, the Alliance and the Duc de Lazune, were on a mission to bring 72,000 Spanish silver dollars from Cuba to the American colonies to pay the Continental soldiers. The American ships were intercepted by three British ships, the Alarm, the Sybil, and the Tobago. Molly Thomas is author of a series of articles about the battle published in the Indian River Journal. I think in my article I referred to it as a two-ship treasure fleet on a secret mission to secure funding to pay the American soldiers that had been pretty much languishing for almost two years without pay in uh, upstate New York and other places throughout the colonies. As the American ships carrying much-needed funds for the Continental Army met with the British ships determined to stop them, one ship from each side took the lead in battle. Molly Thomas. Basically, you had two ships sailing north, and you had three ships sailing south. The ships heading north were the Americans, and the three sailing south were the British. And um, only the Alliance and the Sybil really engaged. The other two, the Tobago and the Alarm, kind of lingered back a little bit and didn't get involved in the fight. And the Duke de Lazune just did its best to stay out of it because it couldn't keep up with any of them. So they would have really just seen the Alliance and the Sybil going at it together. Robert Morris of the Continental Congress was the mastermind of the secret plan to bring Spanish money from Cuba to fund the American Revolution. His plan would lead to the last naval battle of the war. He was the chief financier for a lot of things to do with the military, and he was also what they called an agent of Marine, which is basically like the secretary of the Navy now. And he was a self-made shipping mogul, so he had a lot of connections both in buying and selling ships, so he actually purchased the Duke de Lazune himself, and he also had a, a lot of access to just in networking with people in other ports, so he was able to coordinate them going down to Havana to secure this money from a French financier. As the American Revolution progressed, East Florida became a haven for loyalists fleeing American colonies to the north. The East Florida economy flourished as they provided supplies to the British colonies in the Caribbean. Roger Smith. As the southern colonies fell, it kind of hit like a wave, starting uh, with, with Virginia and just rolled down uh, into, into the southern colonies. And as that happened, the, the loyalists of these, of these colonies were funneled basically uh, into East Florida and then, and then trickle over to West Florida. So uh, to kind of give you an idea, when the war broke out, Population-wise, we only had, if you included um, uh, Europeans and their slaves, we had about 3,500 people. Um, at the end of the war, just uh, right around um, Christmas of 1782, there were between 21 and 22,000 people here. So they literally funneled down and superpopulated East Florida. And what happened is that the, the British never got that the southern colonies reclaimed as they were after, but so much of what they were looking for and needed so desperately in the Caribbean, we had here in East Florida the natural supplies for, um, for the foodstuffs and the flax and for um, naval stores and things like that. We picked up about 80% of the slack of what the southern colonies were no longer able to ship. Ironically, the Treaty of Paris was signed more than a month before the last naval battle of the American Revolution occurred. No one in the Americas knew that the war was over because word had not yet arrived from Europe. That knowledge might not have made a difference because America really needed the money from Cuba. Molly Thomas. 
The Battle of Yorktown had already happened. Everything had stopped for the most part as far as the hostilities went, but they wouldn't disband the army um, despite all the times that, and the many letters that George Washington had sent, they, they refused to disband it because they didn't actually believe that they were going to come to any terms. So for that two-year window after Yorktown and then this battle, the, the soldiers were not paid and they didn't have the money to pay them. The HMS Sybil under James Vashon and the USS Alliance under John Barry were the two ships engaged in the last naval battle of the American Revolution. The Sybil started to go after the Duke. The, the Duke was a smaller ship, by far a slower ship, and whether or not they had realized it, before they actually engaged with the Americans, the Duke had thrown off most of her cannons and ammunition to try to be faster, to lessen the load. So they knew that that was the weaker of the two ships, and based on intelligence that I would have loved to find the source of, um, they were looking for the Lazoon. They, they knew that ship had the actual money on it. They didn't know that most of it had been removed by that point, but that's who they were going after. And Vashon was not really wanting to engage with the Alliance, but when the Alliance saw her opportunity to get in between them, she did. So that's basically when the actual fight started. Thomas says the other ships present didn't get involved in the battle. The Alarm and the Tobago didn't really get involved at all. In fact, as I found out towards the end of this three-article series, they basically hoisted the flags of retreat almost immediately as soon as the Alliance flipped around and, and got in between the Sybil and the Duke. So they, they didn't want to engage. Now, whether they didn't want to engage because of, I guess for lack of a better term, prowess of the Alliance and her captain, I'm not sure. But at this time, nobody, none of them would have known that the war had actually come to an end. So it's interesting to me that even though they could have probably, between the three of them, easily taken those two ships, that they didn't. And particularly since they did know what was on board. With East Florida a Loyalist stronghold, the mission to bring funds to the Continental Army through enemy waters was dangerous. Thomas believes the American ship captains must have anticipated encountering British ships on the way home from Cuba. I think they really did. The only saving grace for them was the Spanish presence in the Caribbean. Other than that, from the day that Barry sailed out to meet John Green in Havana, he was sailing through British territory with all those little islands because that was all British controlled. And he makes several notes in his log throughout that trip before he got to Havana that said they were everywhere. And he actually engaged with a couple of them and very fortunately was able to escape a, a very dangerous altercation to get to Havana. So they were anticipating the British presence throughout. The mission was ultimately successful, but a very close call as the war was ending. Molly Thomas. I don't like to pose any conjecture as to what would have happened ultimately. The, the distance between Britain and the newly formed United States at that time was so significant that I don't think them losing this would have changed anything with the outcome of that treaty, but it certainly would have been a, a big hit to morale because they would not have been able to pay those soldiers. At the end of the American Revolution, control of Florida returned to the Spanish. Roger Smith. 
That is one of those facts of stranger than fiction kind of stories. The, the British, um, they believed uh, they, had, they had repelled three invasions into East Florida, and they had been involved in uh, the, the invasions, uh, incursions uh, of the British into Georgia, holding Georgia. Some of these men had fought uh, in, in approaching uh, Charleston, and they believed, kind of like the Canadians, that when the war was over, they were the only colony south of the, the Canadian border that never lowered the Union Jack. So they believed that they had earned their right to remain a, a British colony uh, just like the, Canada had. Uh, the problem was at the end of the war, the, the Spanish came along and said, okay, we're sitting here at the, uh, at, the, at the Treaty of Paris. We want Gibraltar. And the British said, look, you tried twice during the conflict to take back Gibraltar. You lost both times. We're not going to just hand it to you. As a matter of fact, if you want, we can go back to war over Gibraltar. I mean, that controlled, you know, the, the, the flow of everything in and out of the, the Mediterranean. So, uh, so the, the British, kind of being British, they said, I'll tell you what we'll do. You captured West Florida, we're going to let you keep it, okay? And, and just because we're nice guys, we're going to throw in East Florida. So you can have back what you had all those years. And it absolutely sucker punched the, uh, the loyalists here in East Florida because so many of them had sacrificed lives and families and, and their fortunes to come down here to, to maintain some kind of a base here. And now they're being handed back for, for political reasons. They found themselves nothing but pawns in, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the empire. We spoke with Molly Thomas, author of a series of articles on the last naval battle of the American Revolution published in the Indian River Journal, and Florida colonial historian Roger Smith. And it's a fair wind Blowing warm out of the south on my shoulder I guess I'll set a course and go This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, find out about upcoming events, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. on my shoulders makes me happy. In my eyes can make me cry. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, naturalist John Muir first visited Florida in 1867. What was the state like then? Well, in 1867, Florida was still suffering from the effects of the Civil War. It was only a couple of years after the war had ended. Florida, being uh, part of the Confederacy, uh, was really economically at least devastated. There wasn't a lot of devastation in other states in terms of, of warfare and major battles and things like that. But the population was still kind of rebuilding. 
And a lot of the people living in Florida and people who were moving into Florida had to kind of figure out where their place was. This is what we call the, the period of Reconstruction. In 1867, Florida was still under federal administration. It was still under the, the guidance of the federal government. They hadn't drafted a new constitution. The state hadn't actually even been officially readmitted into the Union. So there were a lot of different people coming into the state, including formerly enslaved peoples from other southern states who were kind of figuring out what their role was in this new economy, and and former Confederates who were moving into the state, trying to kind of take advantage and, and rebuild what had really been kind of a blossoming economy up to that point. Florida became a state in 1845. By 1860, the longest railroad in the state had actually connected the Atlantic and the Gulf Coast. It was known as a Florida railway that, that traveled from Fernandina to Cedar Key. And a lot of that infrastructure was at the very least damaged, if not destroyed. So it was kind of a difficult transition period in 1867 that Muir would have experienced when he first came here. Muir was a naturalist and environmental philosopher who traveled much of the United States. What brought him to Florida? Well, Muir was originally from Scotland. He came to the United States as a young man in the 1840s. His family settled around what is now present-day Wisconsin, around the Madison area. In 1867, Muir found himself actually working in Indianapolis, in Indiana. He was working as a machinist at a wagon wheel factory, and it was, uh, believe it or not, it was actually a, a near-fatal injury that proved to be kind of the impetus for an expedition into the wilderness. Now, he had been fascinated with the wilderness and the outside world for most of his childhood, going all the way back to Scotland and then his time in the Midwest. He had traveled around Canada a little bit, but kind of settled into life, as, as many people do. But he was nearly blinded in March of 1867. And while he was recovering in, in a dark room, he realized that his time was better spent exploring the natural world, specifically North America. So Muir decided to embark on a journey. What he he later called a thousand mile walk to the Gulf uh, from Indianapolis through Kentucky, throughout the southeastern part of the United States, uh, eventually to Florida and actually crossed the state of Florida from present day Nassau County to Levy County, Cedar Key. And, and it was a, a fascinating journey. And he kept a journal of his expedition. It took him a, a little over a month to travel down to Florida. And he kept kind of a day-to-day -day journal that wasn't actually published until 1916. It was published um, posthumously, but the original journal contains some really fascinating insights. And I'll read just briefly about his initial uh, observations of Florida. This is dated October 15th, 1867. Muir writes, quote, Today at last I reached Florida, the so-called land of flowers, that I had so long waited for, wondering if after all my longings and prayers would be in vain, and I should die without a glimpse of the flowery cannon. But here it is, at the distance of a few yards, a flat, watery, reedy coast with clumps of mangroves and forests of moss-drenched, strange trees appearing low in the distance." Unquote. Now, he's describing Fernandina when he actually first arrived. And it was from Fernandina that he disembarked and decided to kind of follow the Florida Railroad roughly across the state. And that involved sleeping essentially in swamps and in um, oak forests and in pine forests, uh, really with no tent or any kind of camping. He, he just slept outside on the ground. Uh, he describes encountering alligators, which up to that point, like many people who had never traveled to Florida, they thought of alligators as these kind of evil uh, creatures, but we kind of see this evolution in how he understands nature and, and where each living thing kind of fits into his understanding of nature. He says here, quote, I think that most of the antipathies which haunt and terrify us are morbid productions of ignorance and weakness. I have better thoughts of those alligators now that I've seen them at their home. 
Honorable representatives of the great Saurians of an older creation, may you long enjoy your lilies and rushes, and be blessed now and then with a mouthful of terror-stricken man by way of dainty, unquote. So you can see he's kind of understanding at least the place at which so many creatures kind of live and exist um, within nature that would change and evolve over time, but help to influence his later understandings of nature that he became, of course, so very famous for. Now, Muir traveled across the state. He visited Gainesville, which he called an oasis uh, amongst the forest. He actually visited and stayed with a former Confederate officer, an officer in the Confederate Army, who he said was, was very genial, even though he was from the North. Spent a few days hunting and actually describes here, I want to read just briefly, his descriptions of a palm hammock that he encountered just west of Gainesville. Uh, he said here, what a landscape. Only palms as far as the eyes could reach, smooth pillars rising from the grass, each capped with a sphere of leaves, shining in the sun as bright as a star, unquote. So we start to see that wonderful writing that, that Muir, of course, became famous for later in life. Now, he reached Cedar Key, and he talks about smelling the salt air, a scent that he hadn't experienced since his youth back in Scotland. But unfortunately, it was that area that almost killed him. He was stricken with malaria and actually stayed with a local family, the Hodgsons, for a matter of months kind of recovering before he was able to leave Florida. Now, did Muir ever return to Florida after his 1867 trip here? He did. So after 1867, he traveled to Cuba. Originally, he had planned on uh, traveling throughout the Caribbean, eventually to South America. After Cuba, he made his way back to New York and then from New York to California. And as they say, the rest is history. That's really what he's kind of most well known for is his work and his travels and experiences in uh, the Pacific Northwest up into Alaska. Now, he was, of course, integral in establishing uh, the conservation movement in the United States, helped save the Yosemite Valley, uh, and of course, created the Sierra Club. But he did come back to Florida in 1898 traveled along the east coast of Florida, went as far south as Key West, traveled up through the interior of Florida into Palatka, and actually went back to Cedar Key. He had spent so many months kind of convalescing and and, uh, recovering from what we believe to be malaria. Uh, He eventually uh, found some of the surviving members of the family that he stayed with and had really a wonderful trip and and wrote uh, very fondly of this kind of uh, returning to his old haunts that, that he had visited some 30 years ago. And if you can imagine, Florida had changed quite a bit by 1898, it really had become a bustling kind of um, state relative to 1867. So the railroads were kind of back, infrastructure was coming back, and the state was growing tremendously. Presently, there's there's a park uh, that's in Nassau County that's named for John Muir. It's called the John Muir Ecological Park. So you can actually take a quarter mile walk and experience just a glimmer of, of what uh, Muir experienced back in 1867. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Sunshine Almost all the time Makes me high Sunshine Almost all This is Florida Frontiers. Kayla Campana is a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida. She has this look at the Veterans Legacy Program. The Veterans Legacy Program is a national program instituted by the National Cemetery Administration, which is part of the Veterans Administration. The goal, I think broadly conceived, is to help the public gain a greater appreciation of national military cemeteries across the United States. 
They want to help people make personal connections to these cemeteries. And in order to do this, they fostered a collaboration among not just the National Cemetery Administration, but universities such as the University of Central Florida, undergraduate students, graduate students, K through 12 educators, and K through 12 students. And we're all working together to enable people to get a better understanding, in our particular instance, of the Florida National Cemetery at Bushnell. That was historian Dr. John Satcher from the University of Central Florida. The History Department at UCF recently partnered with the Department of Veterans Affairs to bring veterans' stories to life through the Veterans Legacy Program. UCF's team worked with Florida National Cemetery in Bushnell, Florida, one of 135 cemeteries overseen by the National Cemetery Administration. In May 2017, the Veterans Legacy Program hosted a field trip at Florida National Cemetery. During this day of learning, UCF faculty, staff, and students taught 7th graders about the sacrifices and the lived experiences of veterans. Dr. Satcher tells us more about the field trip. It's one thing for me to say there are 150,000 people buried at the cemetery, but that doesn't compare to actually standing out there, looking in every direction and seeing sort of endless tombstones. So we thought if we could bring out K through 12 students and their teachers and actually a few parents, um, we could make this a much more meaningful experience. So we had 150 students from the Davenport School of the Arts come out to the cemetery for a field trip, and we gave them an experience they would never forget. The day started with a program which included a trumpet playing taps, which is almost guaranteed to give everyone their goosebumps. Then what we did is we divided the students into 12 groups and they proceeded through 12 stations, lives and legacies, which were really biographies of some of the people who are buried there, and learning stations, which talked about the wars America's fought in. It enabled the students to write thank you notes to veterans. It enabled students to learn about national cemeteries. It enabled students to learn about the religious symbols that are on the gravestones. Students from the University of Central Florida also wrote biographies for over 100 veterans in Florida National Cemetery. The biographies contain harrowing stories of veterans from all walks of life, from every branch of military, and from all over the world who are now memorialized at Florida National Cemetery. The website features the biographies as well as K-12 classroom materials and instructions for how to download an augmented reality app that allows visitors in Florida National Cemetery to read veteran biographies while standing at individual project grave sites or virtually off-site. Dr. Satcher explains what the students learned from the field trip experience. First and foremost, they were struck by the personal stories. Here are soldiers who, if they didn't live in Tampa or Orlando or St. Pete before the war, they retired to Florida, as many Americans do. It enabled students to appreciate that the old man down the street might be a veteran. So I think it is the personal connection that really brings history to life and makes history interesting to the students. History is not something that occurs in a far-off place in a far-off time. History is something that is still alive for them today. Through the Veterans Legacy Program, the students discovered that every veteran in Florida National Cemetery has a unique story. Cemeteries themselves, I think, are shrouded in emotion, and they tell a very basic history. Picture yourself looking at a tombstone. A tombstone has a name, it has a birth date, a dash, a death date. They probably have their rank, their branch of service, uh, what conflicts they served in. What the Veterans Legacy Program does is sort of tell the story about the dash between those dates. If you have someone who was born on March 15th, 1898 and died on November 17th, 1974, well, that dash represents a lot of time. That dash represents their family life, 
their jobs before and after the war, whether they were immigrants, whether they were children of immigrants. What the Veterans Legacy Program does is it fills in the dash with all those interesting details that are part of human life. And it is this story, I think, which makes the connection between people and their nation and their state's history. And it's a story which helps understand why these cemeteries are, in the words of the National Cemetery Administration, shrines to the gallant dead. To read the biographies of more than 100 veterans from Florida National Cemetery, visit www.vlp.cah.ucf.edu. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Kayla Campana, a student in the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and find us on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.